0: Everybody. welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia.
1: And I'm Patrick Olinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: And the winner of the 2019 Atlanta Half Marathon. Congratulations, Mr. Olinger.
1: Thank you. It feels good. I'm still basking in the, uh, the sunlight of that race and that, that finish.
0: Very cool, very cool. And I, the Atlanta Half Marathon, because it is now named the Atlanta Half Marathon, mm-hmm. appropriately, because it's a half marathon in Atlanta. Um, and it's the premier half marathon in Atlanta. Yes. Um, and uh, new course this year, slightly different, you said, right? S-
1: s- slightly different on a an elevation chart. Um, massively different when you're running it, because <laughs> essentially the final mile went from being uphill to flat. Okay, very so good. It, it's not just that, oh, you had one less mile of hills. It was the toughest mile of hills essentially disappeared, so okay. to speak. So cool. it was a very pleasant surprise to someone who did not check the course map, such as myself.
0: <laughs> and to somebody who was battling for the win there in the last mile, too, because this was not, this was not a, uh, a race where you ran away from the field or you made a move at halfway and that was the end of the race. Now, y'all, y'all were going down to the wire, right?
1: No, we, yeah, it, it, you're exactly right. So, I mean, me and one other guy were literally neck and neck at the 13-mile mark. And we just had to, it was a sprint to the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was do, I did my last quarter just to give you an idea in about sixty seven seconds. Ooh, um, four
0: thirty pace, under four thirty pace. Yeah.
1: So mm-hmm. I mean, it was not a hey, this is gonna be nice. I'm gonna throw my hands up and like point to the crowd. No, 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 my yeah. friend.
0: Not gonna be high fiving people coming down the <laughs> finishing chute.
1: I really, I didn't know I was gonna win until I crossed the line. Right on. Um, And since we were finishing with 5Kers, I had no cues to say, he's close, he's not Mm, close, because it was just a sea of people. So I couldn't tell if I could hear someone behind me or not. Yeah, It was an incredibly exciting race. You saw me, I believe, at mile five or so, Yeah, um, and I was in about seventh or eighth place.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah. No, when I checked the results after the race was over and saw that you won, I was fired up because, yeah, when I had seen you, you were... um, you, you were in, like you said, sixth or seventh, but you were solidly in sixth and seventh. It's not as if, like, you know, you all were separated. You were five seconds behind the leader or something. Um, the, the, the leaders were on up the road.
1: Yeah, I believe I was about 20 seconds behind at the 10K mark. Yeah. Um, and I kind of made the decision, like, well, this may not be my, my day to win or to be top three or top five like I was hoping, but I'll just run my race and, you know, focus on what I can control and then around about mile, the, the eighth mile, we had a long downhill going into Virginia Highlands, and um, I just noticed I had made up a lot of distance on them without putting too much of a surge or anything. It almost kind of happened naturally, so to speak. And then I noticed I was making a lot, making up a lot of ground on any uphill that came up. And knowing that there was going to be a lot of hills in 10, 11, 12, I started to say, well, maybe I can maybe I can catch them. And right then on. I caught them at, at, at 10, and then... T- Me and two other guys broke away once we left Piedmont Park Mm -hmm. and started charging through Midtown. And that was like, it was almost like a 5K race at the end. I mean, it was, you know, we were changing leads and it was just, everybody was kind of giving everything they had. And I I feel like if we had run that race three times, the the top three people, each of us would have won once. Yeah. And I'm just lucky it happened on the day that I ended up crossing first because I got to say that was quite a finish. Right on. Very exciting and, and a lot of fun.
0: Right on. It was exciting for me to, to see the result there. Very good. And uh, the you and the other two guys, the the three of y'all, all went pretty fast. The um, it was it was a PR for you, wasn't it?
1: It was. Indeed. Yeah. I'm right
0: on, man. Mm-hmm. Very good. A PR over uh, your PR, so, which was only a few months old, really.
1: Yeah. So I, I ran a one twelve thirty at Athens last October, and then mm-hmm. I ran a one twelve twenty six in uh in this race. Right on. So, so
0: neither neither of which is a very fast course. So very cool. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, you know, and I, I got to mention, too, the guy who finished second, so um, his name's Jack, um, and he ran with us this morning, so, mm-hmm. so Patrick and I are recording this post-long run, as we often do, um, and uh, uh, Patrick, being the consummate gentleman in good sport, made friends with the guy who he was battling with there over the course of the last mile, and uh, uh, invited him to come running with us on Sunday, so we ran with him just now, and uh, found out that his 5KPR is faster than yours. Yes. Right. A significant amount. Yeah, and so so, but you, but you were saying, and I think this is good that um, had you known that, that probably would have gotten in your head, and you probably would have when you probably wouldn't have been able to chase him down in that last tenth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that that's there's something to be said for that.
1: A- absolutely. Like sometimes there's there's knowing too much, right? You know, had I known for that sure. this was a a 14 minute 5K or coming from Stanford, I mean it doesn't exactly encourage your your, your uh, willingness to take risk and to leave it all oh, out yeah. there and to really kind of, you know, unleash everything you have. For sure. Um, but, yeah, so it was fun meeting him and, and talking to folks at the end of the race. And I got to say, too, this race meant especially a lot to me because, as we've talked about before, you know, I ran in college and then took off a lot of time. And then I started to come back after the Boston bombing and kind of had just decided, all right, I'm just going to, Be like a three-hour marathon or so, which is fine. But I didn't really care to like really be competitive again and Mm -hmm. run more than two or three times a week. And then, and I ran Publix 2015, ran really well. And I met a guy there named Rob Richardson, who Mm -hmm. I knew in high school. Yeah. Who, by the way, has aged like four months since high. He looks exactly the same (laughs) as he did in high school. So like we saw each other to finish, and I immediately recognized him because he hasn't aged at all, despite that having never having not seen him in 10 years
0: rob was a collegiate golfer yeah and then got into triathlon so the people who are part of the metro atlanta triathlon scene probably are familiar with rob
1: so and he was the one who said hey you know let me tell you about itl i want to bring you into this group all that so that race in 2015 was kind of a big similar moment for me because it was a when i met rob and started to become a bit more of a social runner instead of just making it something i did on my own it was also when i decided you know hey this is something i really enjoy and I want to kind of go back into this full force again. And I want to really kind of give a yeah. lot more of myself into this sport. That's cool. Um, and so, you know, that year I was like, all right, I'm third. This is the big local race. I grew up in Atlanta. You know, I was a part of a, a state championship team. I want to, you know, I would like to win this race eventually. And then so it's nice to be able to have, have won it because I've had like, right that goal for about four years or so. Right on. And And you finished second. Yeah, I fin- finished like second and third. Um, so it's nice that it worked
0: out. Right on, man. Very good. Well, congratulations. It was exciting to, to, to see. I uh, I ran it back in 2014. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, I like my um, I like my spectator routine so much. I'm probably never going to run it again. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I get up and I go and I watch it in front of the house of a guy that I used to coach with. Okay. And, and I see him about once a year. And it's there and and I get to hang out with him it's Will Kramer's dad it's Jeff Kramer Oh okay um and and I hang out with him and we cheer and we get to see all of these people that we coached on Atlanta cross country teams and people that I currently coach come running by right. and it's just it's fun for me to do that and so mm-hmm. I don't think I'm ever going to run that race again just cuz I enjoy the spectator experience mm-hmm. so much in it um but we'll see I don't know I say that now and who knows I'm probably going to sign up for next year next week um, given the way that I've been with the races lately.
1: But you make a good point though, that like shout out to to Mizuno and ATC for, for really a great event. It's it's, it's not as many people as Peachtree, but the number of really dedicated runners who run that race is is very high. Like that really is a race that most kinda high level, you know, um, runners in this area Make a focus. Yeah. We, we want to make it to that race, either as spectators or as or as runners.
0: Yeah. And a lot of people from, a lot of people from the multi-sport community do it as well. Yeah. So it's not just uh, pure runners. It's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, triathletes do that race too. So it so it cuts across a lot of lines inside of the, the endurance community. Um, and so, and a lot of people from, from, um, you know our running group, but other running groups as well, uh, including. And I wanted to make sure we, we gave a shout out to this since we're talking about it. Um, the the Walking with Kpz Foundation. Yeah. Um, that's one of their big events. Uh, the in the push assist division, and they had sixty different athletes um, compete in the push assist division, um, and most of them are uh, assisted by more than one pusher, up to four pushers, um, and so sixty athletes, up to four pushers. That's more than two hundred. Uh, people that are that are pushing um, and and assisting in that process, and so it's a really massive undertaking for them. Um, but it's great to see them all out there, um, yeah. and so so again to cheer for all of them too. So uh, so shout out to the, the the Kyle Pease Foundation with to Walking with KPZ for continuing to grow their presence in that event. Um, so yeah, it's very cool, very cool. Um, and
1: one final little nugget about that race too is. It's funny because when I left for college in 2006, I don't believe that race was even around or like it was very small. <laughs> yeah. It really has kind of exploded over the last six years or so. Yeah. Um, cause even when I ran it in like 2014, it was kind of a nice fun, mm-hmm. but it was definitely kind of a second banana to the Thanksgiving half and yeah. peach tree.
0: Second banana. Yeah. Or right. third banana, I guess. Um, but
1: it's been nice to see how it's really kind of grown over the years, kind of year over year.
0: Second banana. Um, All right, very good. You can tell I just ran because apparently
1: food is on my mind. Yeah, I I was going to say,
0: you you just had a banana, so there you go. Um, Very good, very good. Um, Let's talk about a couple other things kind of here. Um, uh, Tell me what you're reading, man.
1: So I just finished a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so those of you who, who are regular listeners of this podcast, you know, one of my big goals of this year is to read more books. Mm-hmm. Um, starting in high school... You've been
0: doing it, man. You've been knocking it out.
1: Yeah. So starting in high school, I, I read about three books a month, pretty much every month, high school, college, grad school, etc. And then all of a sudden, early 2018, late 2017, it's like the faucet just turned off. Hmm. And I didn't read hardly at all. Hmm. And I, I couldn't really quite figure out Why? And, um, this year I was like, all right, I really, I want to make a conscious effort to start reading more. And one of the books I found was called how to break up with your phone. And the reason I I went to this book is because part of my hypothesis was I had replaced reading books with reading articles. Yeah. And instead of using my downtime to open up a book and take a deep dive into a subject, I would just flip around on Twitter, you know, scroll through Facebook, whatever. And that can be a nice kind of mind numbing activity to rest at the end of the day when you're too mentally tired to engage in a thoughtful activity. But at the same time, it, it, it had kind of overwhelmed, you know, and it, it had gone from kind of becoming a nice snack, so to speak, to replacing the full meal. And so that's why I wanted to read this book to, to kind of start to identify strategies to kind of eliminate the phone from my life okay. and to kind of not be a, a slave to technology, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I'll also tell you too, I had kind of a come to Jesus moment a few weeks ago where I was talking to a friend, just like the way I'm sitting right in front of you, and my phone buzzed, and he was literally in the middle of telling a story, and I just looked down and checked the phone,
0: hmm.
1: and like it was an it was a like spam email, like it was yeah. nothing,
0: yeah,
1: and he was like, "Do you want me to finish the story, or like right. are you busy?" And I was just like, "Okay, I never want to do that again. Like yeah. that was bad. Like, right. I was like I was Pavlov's dog with like the <laughs> bell and the drool, but it was email notifications instead of." You know, a bell. So that right. was when I was like, okay, like, this has gone too far. I want to I start to kind of rein this habit in. Right, right. So I read this book called How to Break Up With Your Phone, and it shares tips for, you know, how to have a better relationship with your phone mm-hmm. and how to engage, you know, in, in some habits to make sure you don't do what I did and end up paying more attention to your phone than the actual person sitting in front of you. And so I really enjoyed it. Uh to give you kind of some stats here about how often we use our phone, the average uh, college student looked at their phone more than 10 hours a day,
0: because
1: hmm. they can track how often you're unlocking your phone, and you can actually look and see, like, how long- 10 hours a day? A day. Hmm. That only leaves another, like, 14 hours to, you know, sleep, sleep <laughs> eat,
0: run, breathe,
1: like, <laughs> I guess you can breathe while you're but, like, have conversations I, with people in real yeah, life. Yeah. Be productive. Do something. Mm-hmm. Um and I can tell you, I looked at mine. I and, and over the past like year or so, my phone was saying that I had I have looked at my phone, I've had my phone unlocked for an average of like an hour forty a day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: An hour forty a day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Could you imagine how much more I could accomplish in life mm-hmm. if I practiced something for an hour or forty a day? Mm-hmm. Because think about it, because when you're using your phone and when you're unlocking your phone, you're essentially practicing distracting yourself.
0: Assuming that you're you're not using it for good reasons. Assuming you're not, like, writing email on it, you know, right?
1: Honestly, like, so I write emails on phones, on my phone. I got to be honest with you. Like, I bet if I looked at the email app, it, there's no way it takes up more than 20 or 30 minutes of that hour, hour 40. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was when I kind of had this moment of, man, if I spent an hour and 40 on my phone, like flipping through stuff, like whether it be Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, Strava, you know. Imagine how much more I could accomplish if I'd use that time to learn a new language, mm-hmm. to learn computer programming or something. You could
0: learn a new language on your phone.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, exactly. There used to be email notifications or something when I, there you I learned a new skill. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, it'll, so. it'll notify you when your friend's telling you a story and it's not in the language that you're trying to learn,
1: <laughs> <laughs> or it'll translate it to the new language. There you something. go, yeah. Um,
0: no. no, if I sound offensive, it's because actually I'm in a place right now, and and I think th- th- this doesn't this doesn't reflect my station in life. It ebbs and flows for me throughout the course of the year for some reason. Yeah, but but right now I'm reading more articles than I am reading books, mm-hmm. um, and and I have I have a book that I'm reading. Um, uh, a piece of fiction that I'm reading right now, a Stephen King book that I mentioned last time we were, we were talking, but, um, but I end up reading more articles. I end up getting sucked into the news a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's in part because I'm listening. I listen to the news in the car, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, okay, well, let me read a little bit more about or a little bit more analysis from this headline that I heard in the car or something like that, you All know? Right. And so I try and make them deeper dives. but, but I, I do agree with you that there's, there, there's a difference between the snacks you get from reading articles and the meals you get from reading books. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah yeah very cool very good.
1: So there are a few tips that they offered which I have adopted I, I, I'll share it here just because some folks might find them helpful some might not yeah go ahead but so so first of all one thing we need to understand about our phones is every website is designed to grab your attention and keep it for as long as possible. That's how people get paid sure is by engagement and clicks mm-hmm. So once you realize like this entire website you're looking at whatever website it is, even if it's about how to prevent cancer, the people behind it are still paid based on how long you stay on their page. So their whole goal is to keep you there, so to speak. Um, so you know they're 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 kind of designed to, to kind of keep your attention and, and kind of keep you looking down at your phone. Mm-hmm. So once you kind of realize that, it does help you kind of say, okay, so I don't want to fall into all the traps here. I want to just kind of take take some of the information, take the snack, so to speak, and then move right along, graze and then move right along. Mm-hmm. So some of the kind of key you know, hacks or, or habits that, that this author suggested. So the first one that I loved was they said, you know, a lot of these web pages are designed to be, you know, specific colors because mm-hmm. obviously the human brain is kind of designed to be attracted to, to certain colors. Mm-hmm. So she said, go into your phone and make it black and white. So, like, if you look at my phone now, if you look at my pictures, my maps, everything's black and white. There are no colors. All right. So that, and that actually does kind of help cut down so then you certainly don't spend as much time scrolling through photos because the photos just don't look that attractive anymore, hmm. um, just to be perfectly blunt. Another thing, buy an alarm clock that's not your phone. Because when your phone is your alarm clock, what do you do? You turn off the alarm, and boom, there's your phone right in your hand, you start reading it online.
0: Right okay. Now. Yeah, fair. So you start it de- de- off def- I definitely do that, on yeah. your phone.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and you can burn 20 minutes right there, hmm. just scrolling through. Um, which you may say to yourself, well, if I didn't do that, I would just go drink coffee and kind of sit and stare. That's fine. Because sometimes we actually need that sit and stare space. True. Um, another big kind of habit that, that um, I've enjoyed, turn off email notifications. Now, if, you know, like a lot of folks, my job, I want to see email notifications from my boss. Mm-hmm. So I turned off all email notifications, but set the settings so if I see emails from certain people, mm-hmm. I will get notifications from them. Right. But all of the like marketing emails, all of the um, you know newsletters, all that stuff—no notifications.
0: I, I will say when it comes to notifications, so I I I learned the lesson about notifications kind of by doing the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, is that that I have an Instagram account and I never really check it, mm-hmm. and people would tag me and stuff on Instagram and I would miss it. And, and the only way I would find out about it is because my wife would tell me about it a week later. And then I'd look and I'd be like, oh, hey, thanks for the really nice mention three weeks ago on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so I turned on notifications on Instagram. And I still don't use it that much. But I know when somebody, when somebody tags me in something. Um, and that way I can go ahead and respond. And so I've kind of learned what you just said. In the opposite direction. Right. I, le- I learned how much notifications can change your behavior by turning on my notifications for Instagram. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, it makes sense that, that if you want to change your behavior, yeah, turn off the notifications for sure. I don't have notifications for, I don't have notifications for my email and I have at least one athlete. And I do have it for Facebook Messenger and I have at least one athlete who, because of that, she writes to me on Facebook Messenger rather than writing to me on, on, on email because on email she knows it's going to give me a notification and I'm going to respond more quickly, which is true. I will. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway keep going
1: another one and I love this idea and I, I'm going to read uh, a quote here she says just as intermittent fasting does the body good physically regular short phone." okay well that,
0: that that's a little bit you know dodgy but keep going <laughs> okay short phone <laughs> the jury's still out on intermittent fasting but keep going <laughs> are
1: essential to our mental and emotional health being mm-hmm. constantly tethered to our phones exhaust our brains um, and then that, that's the end of the quote but I just really like the idea of you know I started to when I get home just turn the phone off Mm -hmm. you know if it's 8.30 and I get an email I'll be back awake on my computer by 6.30 Mm -hmm. if you have a job where you're like in banking and you're working with a bank in Hong Kong maybe Mm -hmm. you need to have those updates in the middle of the night Mm -hmm. but honestly for me Mm -hmm. I if if I seeing it at 9 o'clock at night and we're seeing it at 6 o'clock in the morning no difference Yeah. but it does release that that ping 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 just that constant um alertness to your brain, where your brain's saying, I have to address an issue. Right. So I've really enjoyed it. Um, It really was kind of eye-opening to me to realize five years ago, I didn't even own a a smartphone. And now I'm looking at it over an hour and a half a day. Hmm. I mean, that's more than I run, for goodness sake. And running, I consider, a big part of my life. And smart, looking at my, I would never say, My name's Patrick. I'm a runner and I'm a smartphone grazer. or or whatever. I'm a smartphone user. Um, But apparently it was just as big a part of my life as running. Yeah, that's a good point. Even if I didn't mean for it to. That's a good point. Um, So I really enjoyed this book. I hope this little spill does not come off as like some finger wagging, you know, Dr. Laura Sermon or anything. Because it it certainly was more of like an awareness on my part.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, it was you recognizing something that you need to change and then then figuring out a way to go about changing it. And so.
1: Yeah. and, And. you know, it just, you know, one little tidbit too, and um, I wanted to kind of throw out there. So, you know, for those of you who are Harry Potter fans, for example, um, you know, one. The, so let me backtrack and say, one of the things I, I've noticed that I have missed, you know, since kind of getting a smartphone is I remember in college, I've always been someone who enjoys writing. Is I remember in college, I would love to go to a coffee shop or a library and just be like, all right, I'm going to take a morning of stillness and just write. Mm-hmm. I'll write um, something for work. Mm-hmm. I'll write a paper. I'll even write just a personal nonfiction writing, but something mm-hmm. where I can just take time to be still and get thoughts down on paper and kind of let my imagination run wild. Mm-hmm. I don't do that anymore because now I feel like if you go to a coffee shop with nothing but a pen and paper, people will think you're a psychopath. Like, mm-hmm. why is he not looking at a phone? Why is he not, mm-hmm. you know, doing something? And when I was, you know, reading this book, I had this kind of epiphany. Um, for, for folks who are Harry Potter fans... J.K. Rowling started writing that book because she was sitting on a train and was just kind of looking around the train, kind of people watching, and she saw this boy who just kind of captured her imagination. She thought it was kind of had an interesting personality, and that that boy was the, the inspiration for Harry Potter. Because hmm. she just said, "Well, I wonder where he's going. Well, what if he's going to a, like a magical wizard school or something like that?" Right. And it was kind of off to the races from there. Right. But if she had done that 15 years later, she'd have been looking down at her phone. And the book may have never been written. Right. You know, and that's obviously kind of an extreme example, but I do think that the point remains that um, sometimes we, you know, we need to take time to be still and to kind of have our own thoughts to ourselves.
0: And that's an interesting point for me to consider. I was telling, um, telling some people this week about... Uh, in my in my day job as a professor, um, there are three things on which I am judged. Um, there's really four things, but but generally speaking, as a professor, there's three things: there's your teaching, there's your service, and there's your scholarship. Um, and my teaching is really good. My scholarship or my, my service is really good. My scholarship is lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I and scholarship means researching and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't done enough writing. Um, basically as as a professor and that's something I need to really focus on and I've said that over the course of the next two years I really want to focus on that and and, and make that a priority. Um, and I've thought about okay, how can I actually change my life in order to make that happen? Maybe that's the way. maybe spend less time on my phone. maybe every time I'm like I'm gonna check Facebook I should instead say I'm gonna write a paragraph you know so we'll see.
1: yeah and writing in particular is hard for folks who have never been a writer or been in like a communications um, you know field or, or writing field. Mm-hmm. What's hard about writing is you can have a whole day of just stillness where you're not doing anything but write, and you come away with one page. Right. It is not a linear process, I and mean, right. it takes time. You got to kind of beat your head against the wall. You got to let your mind wander. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the only, and so you have to invest a lot of time, and then over time you have something great. But it's not something where you can procrastinate at all.
0: Right. Right. Well, cool. Very good, man. I'm glad you shared that. Um, we won't go too deep into all the stuff I'm looking at right now, but I will just mention a couple of quick things. I read an interesting article on uh, about Mike Trout, mm-hmm. who's the... Uh, so Since I am reading more articles right now, <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm in that place right now, just, just in that part of the year. I imagine the latter part of the year, I'll probably be reading more books, but uh, I read an interesting article about Mike Trout, who's considered to be the greatest currently playing baseball player is that Correct. fair to say yes um yeah he, he's led the uh led the the major leagues in uh war um uh, uh so wins, wins above, above replacement, replacement yeah yeah, yeah. He's, he's he's led that for the past four or five years and then he recently signed a pretty major contract for 430 million dollars or something like that Correct. um and so so yeah um got a lot of attention for that but essentially what it was arguing was um that, yeah, that's a lot of money, but it's actually not what he's worth. He's actually worth more than that. Um, And so if you look at it from objective place, it's like, wow, this guy plays baseball, and we're going to pay him $45 million a year. Um, It's like, yeah, okay, from objective place, that's kind of mind-blowing. But if you look at how good he is compared to everybody else, how good he is to people historically, um, and then how much he's contributing to the overall Major League Baseball, it's actually... It's actually not really a whole, whole lot. Um, and I, I heard a similar argument about LeBron James on the Freakonomics podcast. I think I might have mentioned that oh a few gosh. weeks ago. Oh, LeBron James is um,
1: like
0: half of what he's worth. Yeah. And the, so LeBron James actually has a similar size contract as Mike Trout. Yeah. Um, you know, he's making $45 million a year or something like that. Um, and if you actually were to consider, okay, what, about LeBron, the, what if you give LeBron James the share of money in the NBA that he's probably responsible for? Is he responsible for, say, 10% of the money that they make? Well, if, they, if, he's, if he's responsible for 10% of the money they make, he should literally have twice as high a salary. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, that's dodgy to, to make that assertion, um, to say exactly what that's going to be. NBA, that doesn't even yeah. include what
1: he provides to Nike. Right, right.
0: Yeah. And so, so yeah, I mean, and, and so I just think it's sort of an interesting thing when, you, when you're thinking about salaries. And we're going to circle back around to salaries here in just a minute. We talk about the U.S. women's soccer team. And um,
1: real quick, there, too, a, a big part of that is the player's salary is published, so that offers the team Hmm. a lot of leverage to be like well the fans don't make this much yeah but the owner's salary is not published (laughs) yeah
0: right well and and that's one thing the owner's take-home pay is not published and and that's one thing that this article kind of argued as well is that a lot of the exact what you're just saying is that a lot of the the um a lot of the talk around it is always surrounded on well he's making so much more than the fans and it's like okay if you paid him 200 million dollars rather than 430 million dollars it's not like the fans would have 200 million dollars more that right. money wouldn't go to the fans. That money would go to the owner. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And, it's a, and, and so, you know, take it in the other direction. If you were to pay him $600 million rather than $430 million, that extra $170 million, they wouldn't pass that out. You know, it's not like they would take a collection from the fans and give it to him. That would just be $170 million that the owner of the, of, of the club is now not, not going to have. Right. Um, and so, so the whole marketing around it um, or the whole, the whole way that they kind of try and bring in the fans in order to, to lock them out um, is, is unfair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, super interesting um, But to, to read about that and just sort of think about that. Um, read a good article, since we're in March Madness here, about Rui Hachimura, who's a mixed-race player from Gonzaga. Okay. Um, he's uh, half Beninese, half Japanese, um, and he's uh, one of the leading players and projected to go in the top ten in the NBA draft. So, he's a role model for lots of people uh, in, in Japan. Um, listened to a good podcast recently called Midnight Oil, which was all about the, uh, the discovery of oil... Um, and the drilling of oil in Alaska. Okay. Uh, which was fascinating and interesting and something I didn't really know a whole lot about. And just started another one about the the mining of copper in Butte, Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of interesting as well. Uh, finished a podcast, finished season two of a podcast called Crime Town. The first season was all about Providence, Rhode Island. The second season was all about um, uh, Detroit. Um, and just about organized crime and corruption in those places, which was super interesting, but I'm not real sure what the takeaway is. Yeah. Um, and then last thing I'll mention, my wife has been really, really into She's kind of gone down a rabbit hole with Elizabeth Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking about this when we were running a little bit this morning. But she listened to the, the podcast called The Dropout. Um, and Elizabeth Holmes was the um, youngest ever self-made female billionaire. Um, and she dropped out of Stanford as a sophomore um, and founded a company called Theranos. Um, which was a combination of therapy and diagnosis. And and uh, their big thing was that they were creating a machine that would enable you to um, do a whole bunch of diagnostic tests using a very small amount of blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was supposed to really be paradigm shifting inside of the health industry. Um, and
1: that would save a huge amount of money yeah. if it were, if yeah. it were possible and it would
0: empower money. it would empower patients and yeah. all sorts of other things and so so uh, the problem was is that the technology didn't exist when she was out there selling it and saying that it did um and so um ultimately she was the the she was exposed for kind of being a fraud um mm-hmm. and and she was indicted um and the company went from a nine billion dollar valuation to less than zero um, so there's in, a... in
1: many ways, the company really didn't exist outside of right. on paper,
0: right. Um, and so they well, they, they they had set up these clinics in Arizona, um, and they actually were seeing patients and stuff, but they literally were taking blood from the patients and then shipping them to a lab and using all of their competitors' equipment to actually do the testing on the blind. <laughs> and so they, they literally were relying heavily on exactly who they said they were trying to get away from. Um, but anyway, um, and there's all sorts of other little wrinkles about it too, um, both about the personality of the woman and about the, the uh, context in which he was working uh, more specifically, the culture of Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, so, and um, my, my wife got really, really sucked into the podcast called The Dropout. We watched the the movie last night, the HBO documentary called The Inventor. Um, and then there's a book, too, called Bad Blood that my wife started mentioning, too. So I figured that we should go ahead and mention that that she's kind of down a rabbit hole with that. And who knows, I might end up going down the rabbit hole as well. Um, last thing I'll mention, have you watched Free Solo?
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I, we watched it last weekend. Okay, so um, we
1: watched it like two weeks ago or so.
0: Yeah, yeah. If you haven't seen Free Solo, it's a fascinating uh, movie about... Alex, what's his last name? Hun, Hun, something. I, I don't recall. But. Okay, yeah, I should know, and I'll totally look it up and mention it here in just a few minutes. But he um, is a is a free climber, um, and he uh, dreamed of free climbing El Capitan, which is this uh, massive rock face in uh, Yosemite National Park um, in California, which a lot of people climb and camp and all that sort of thing. Um, but he wanted to free climb it, which means no ropes, um, and it's all about his attempt to do that, and about free climbing at large. Uh, it won the Academy Award for for Best Picture last year, uh, for not Best Picture, Best Documentary. Um, and uh, it was fascinating. It was good, and he's an interesting character. Um, so. uh, yeah,
1: he was. So I I'll also kind of backtrack too. So when I first watched the documentary, I had never heard of free climbing, mm-hmm. and it literally took me twenty minutes. They kept saying, "Yeah, oh, they're going to climb up, climb up this giant." Like it's not even really a mountain; it's just a giant rock. Yeah. Like he's he is, uh, what perpendicular to the ground the entire time. Yeah. There's it's not like he's running up a hill. He's like hanging on yeah. by a fingernail. Yeah. There's a couple places like, where I'm like, wait, what? For like six or seven hours. Yeah. You and see You see just him. Just pra- you see
0: him practicing with ropes, yeah. and you're like, okay, you can barely do that with ropes. How are you gonna do that without ropes? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And just to clarify too, because I could not believe this was an actual thing, you actually fall to your death. Yeah. Like, that's an actual, like, yeah. thing people do. It's like, you're yeah. going to climb, and then, oh, if I mess up, I will fall and die.
0: Yeah, they had a segment in the movie where they're like, hey, let's look at all these famous free climbers who have died. And, like, and like one of the main, like, one of his best friends in the movie is like, yeah, I, ha- I have friends that, I ha- I've had 25 friends who have died.
1: No, no, he said, all of my friends have died. <laughs> like, not know if you notice, but Even worse. the other thing, too, is it wasn't like, they didn't say, oh, here are the free climbers that have died. It's, here are all the free climbers in the world. Oh, they've all died? Yeah, yeah. And it's, every yeah. one of them, it was between the age of 41 and 44. Yeah. And it was like mm-hmm. they fell to their deaths in those right. three years.
0: Because they're, they're like me. They were just trying to hang on. <laughs> um, yeah, so so hopefully I won't be so dying. It, in the it was a fascinating race, but...
1: kind of character study, really, because... So his name is Alex Honnold. Honnold, um, that's it. And he just, like, he had a quote in there where they said, well, aren't you scared of dying? Aren't you scared of hurting your... Your your mom like the, that? She would have to bear you, or like that? Your girlfriend would miss you. Yeah, his girlfriend and, is,
0: is is his girlfriend is present throughout the film, and and, had, and that he, creates some interesting conversations. He
1: had a remark to the effect of like, "Well, I guess when people die, I guess you miss them for a day or two, but then you move on."
0: Yeah, he said that to his girlfriend.
1: And I remember thinking, "Okay, something is up there because mm-hmm. I got anybody who's ever lost someone knows that's not how it works mm-hmm. in a, any kind of regular attachment." Yeah, you know, yeah.
0: He definitely um my armchair diagnosis would be to say that he's he's definitely on the spectrum. Um but See at the same time but but, but but at the same time that that um and they and they showed him getting a brain scan at one point, that the same part of the brain that would make him perhaps not really entirely socially plugged in, um also does not process fear the same way. Right. And so so things that should scare me and you because we're like, holy crap, we're about to plunge to our deaths, don't really phase him. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why he's able to be successful, um, free climbing up the sides of these mountains and stuff.
1: Yeah, and so to, to kind of describe the test too, so what they did is they put him in an MRI machine. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know, like, when you're in an MRI machine, the, they're, you're laying, like, on your back. It's like you're in a coffin. And they are, like, ro- I shouldn't say rolling, but, like, kind of putting you in this giant tube Mm -hmm. and the tube is like inches from your nose. Like you are, it feels super claustrophobic. You cannot be claustrophobic in an MRI. And they were flashing pictures in front of his face. And like, it'd be like a flower, a little girl, a man with a knife. Yeah. And, like, when I say me with an I'm talking, like, Jason or something. Yeah. Like, something that any other A person scary would, be like, oh, image. gosh, yeah. especially that close in that right. kind of environment. Right. And he apparently didn't have any reaction, so yeah. that's got to be tied with why he enjoys this. Maybe why he needs something that extreme to even have any yeah.
0: kind of adrenaline. And, and And why he's good at it. Right. But because, because like, you or me, we would sort of, like, we, we'd we reach out and try and grab something with our fingertip, and it would slip, and we go, oh, God! Yeah. And, and for him, it slips, and he'd just, all right, just keep going, you know? Yeah. Like, like like it's no big deal. And he, and he continues to be able to stay focused on on making it to the top of the rock. So anyway, so that yeah, that was fascinating to watch. Um, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. And, he, it even, and it even takes place over the course of a couple of years. So even what we're talking about with the way he interacted with other people, even that changes a little bit throughout the course of the film. And so that's kind of interesting to watch too. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, by all means, check those things out. So we've spent a lot of time here talking about what we're up to. It's been a little while since we've been here, so we're actually going to do things a little bit differently this week. In addition to having now spent you know half an hour talking about all the stuff that we, that we've been up to here, um, Patrick's going to tell you about his research, and then I'm going to tell you about some news. And so yeah, it's news and research week, but um, we're only doing one of each, or at least you know one of us is taking research and the other one is taking news. And actually, you you said your research sort of dovetails with uh, what you talked about with phones, right?
1: Yeah, and I'll run through it briefly. Um... But you know, in, in recent years, cell phones have obviously kind of like joined the like pantheon of items that we can't live without, like televisions, cars, um, you know, washing machines. It's almost like you couldn't imagine life without it. I mean, running a, a day without your phone is almost like a day without your left hand, or something. I mean, it's <laughs> you know, uh, it's it, it's remarkable. So they're doing more and more studies about the effects of smartphones, mm-hmm. and you know, now that they've become such an important part of our lives, and with among young people's lives, especially. They're, they're trying to find out, like, how does this affect different areas?
0: It de- it, so so to kind of quick aside on that, it definitely changes um, culture. Yeah. And it, it, it definitely changes not only the nature of interactions, but the nature of expectations mm-hmm. and everything else like that. And they talk about that a lot, like at my college, because we have a lot of people who are 19 and 20 years old who have grown up with cell phones and a lot of professors who are 60, mm-hmm. right? And the expectations that professors have of students and that students have of professors in terms of interactions and conversations don't always match. Right. And so so like a student will send an email to a professor at 2 a.m. and they won't hear from them until they'll write them again at 4 a.m. and they won't hear from them they'll write from them again at 6 a.m. and so a professor will get up at 9 a.m., go to their office, sit down at their desk and have six emails from a student that have come over the course of 12 hours. <laughs> Um, and the students getting angry because they're not getting responded to. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so that's obviously just like one side of it, but but or it comes at it from a particular point of view. But but that causes a cultural breakdown there. Um, and so so yeah, it's it's you know we talk about smartphones and we talk about the way that they've um, the impact that they've had, but but they've had a very broad I think cultural impact. And, I, and I, I frankly I think that they fuel a lot of the conflict that we see between baby boomers and millennials. Yes.
1: Um, I mean, I think they definitely increased social anxiety mm-hmm. because before, if you were a nerd like me, you didn't know <laughs> other people had all these parties in high school. Yeah. You just went home, read your book and like went on your run. And you didn't know everybody else. and then you. Yeah. But now you look on Instagram and you're like, wait, there was a party without mm-hmm. me?
0: You know that's not a great feeling. Well, you know, and, and so, so so two things on that on that on that note. One, but at the same time, it can also be comforting because if you were the only kid at at your high school in your little small rural high school that liked Harry Potter, that liked Star Wars, you might think that you were an outcast. Right. But then you go online and you find out that no, there is a Facebook group with five million members in it, and they're all totally into the same thing you're into. Well,
1: I got to say, running that it's totally changed running for that very reason. Mm-hmm. In my high school, I mean, Parkview was, you know, one of the powerhouses in cross country, as you know. and yeah. has been for a while. We still didn't have more than five runners or so at a time mm-hmm. that really enjoyed running. Mm-hmm. But with with message boards, etc., social media, you can now connect with the kid at Cobb County who's right. really into running and is really right. gunning for fast times and yeah. really kind of goal-oriented.
0: Yeah. Uh, or, or when you or when you go to running camp and you meet those people who live in Florida or Michigan or wherever else it is, you actually stay in contact with them right. because of social media or something else like that, and so it's helped in that regard. On the by the same token, talking about that nerdy kid, just kind of keeping keep with, with this idea. Not that um, describes either
1: one of us. In any no. Case. Yeah. No. Not at all.
0: Yeah. Um, no. Coolest kids ever. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but 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 um, cyberbullying. The reason why cyberbullying gets so much attention is because it used to be that so a kid would go to school. They get bullied from eight to three and then they go home. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and from three till eight, they'd be with their family. They might be with people who love them, that care about them. They could spend time with their books. They could do things that they enjoyed, whatever it happens to be. With now with the advent of the internet and, and certainly with the advent of social media, a kid gets bullied from eight to three. They go home, they log on, they get bullied from three to eight.
1: And probably more immersive. Mercil- yeah.
0: Merciless, yeah, like yeah, that. because because people have because people have a wall there, right? Um and so so the reason why cyberbullying gets so much attention inside of um, inside of of, of circles, um, educational circles, is because it 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 doesn't just ratchet up the bullying a little bit. It literally makes it into like a child cannot escape it. Right.
1: Um, yeah. My mom's a teacher. She said the same thing a few years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's tragic. Anyway. Um, anyway, so, so that was a huge digression. Keep going.
1: So the point is we this is I mean, this is a whole new technology that is changing our lives. It's rewiring our brains. So I talked about mm-hmm. that I have become Pavlov's dog. Mm-hmm. And we, we have to almost wait for the you know, the effects to happen and then study them and figure out how to hmm. you know, engage in habits to to reverse them to some degree. You know, me being one of them. Like I said, I didn't even have a phone five years ago. So, so first of all, this study, um, I, I was flipping through about four or five different ones, so my summary is a bit long. but um, So according to new research, smartphones may turn out to have a substantial downside with regards to fitness and exercise. Hmm. Essentially, they, they found a correlation when looking at college students that showed the more you, you looked at your phone, the less fitness and exercise you engaged in. Now that sounds very obvious, but let me kind of take a bit more a deeper dive here. So the study was conducted at Kent State University. That is
0: actually, that doesn't, that wouldn't be obvious to me. That somebody who finishes, who spends more time on their phone is less fit. That wouldn't necessarily be obvious to me. But keep going.
1: Um, So the study was, uh, that's interesting. Um, So, and we can kind of take a bit more of a deep dive there once I kind of wrap up the summary here. So the study was conducted at Kent State University in Ohio. And it showed that high volume smartphone users tend to have lower fitness level than their peers who don't use their phones as often so the subjects were 300 college students in the midwest. Now that is important for two reasons in my opinion. One, obviously young people are going to have different um, phone habits than different mm-hmm. age generations. And two, right. I do think being in the midwest is important because the winters are harsher. Okay. So like I can just tell you being in Indiana, I watched more TV when I was in Indiana than I than when I did living okay. in California or Georgia just because it's too cold to go outside and do stuff. Right. Frisbee. Right. Um So each participant in this study was asked about the frequency of their cell phone usage, not just for calls or texts, but for emailing, game playing, watching TV, reading, and so on. And they were also asked about their regular physical activities. And they found that the the volunteers who logged the most time on their smartphones tended to be considerably less active when compared to their counterparts who spent less time on their phones. But here's what was astonishing was the difference in the amount of time the students devoted to their phone usage. I mean, it was an extreme difference in the amount of time they spent on their phone. And like I said, you can track this on your phone because it measures it does, yeah, how the, long your, your phone yeah. is unlocked each day. Some of the subjects spent an astonishing 14 hours a day hmm. on their phone. This, and this is double what studies found just three years ago with the same age group. Now, you could say, well, they were multitasking, you know, like I was when I was looking at my phone when talking to my friend. But even still, I mean, that's, uh, that spends almost that, – yeah. that was only 10 hours for, like, sleeping, showering, being in a classroom. Um, and these frequent users reported spending many hours using their phone to watch movies, you know, play video games, pursue status, you know, updates on Facebook, and, and, and send off tweets. So that clearly leaves, you know, very little time for, for exercise. But it does kind of open the question of kind of, you know, is this a chicken or egg phenomenon? so to speak, in terms of do people who live a sedentary lifestyle then spend it on their phones? Right. Or does the phone encourage a sedentary lifestyle, and it's hard to break out of that habit, right. you know, or it or, or causes something more. Um, so, you know, I just thought this was kind of an interesting contrast. The the students who reported the least smartphone usage, which was still close to about 90 minutes a day, um, were the ones who did actually set aside time for, for their day to work out and to kind of get in there, um, get in their workout. So, you know, it it's, it's, it does start to kind of open up this idea of, you know, I, I do this in my own life. I constantly say, Oh, I'm too busy, right? I'm too busy for this. I'm too busy bit for that. But then when I look at my phone and I see, I spent 90 minutes on my phone today. Mm-hmm. Can I really be too busy to, to call my mom? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Or to, to do something like that. So, I just thought this was kind of an interesting introduction or kind of gateway um, study to look at, you know, how the phones are indeed infecting us in, or affecting us in other areas.
0: Yeah. It, I mean, it circles back around to what we were talking about at the outset, or when you were talking about the book that you've been reading lately, to, okay, what are you doing, what are you not doing because you're on your phone? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, and so, so this seems to suggest that one of the things that people are not doing because they're on their phone is working out mm-hmm. right so so that that's something that's getting replaced with phone usage you know of what course. i mean I, I think it would be interesting to see um a, a study with a little bit more of a historical bent but i don't know that you can do it necessarily because smartphones are new right um but what how much do people look at their smartphones in 1980 yeah yeah, yeah. When, yeah when there are no smart. but <laughs> but you know it's it's but but you know you you, you all often hear the question brett brought up that you know how many millions of questions a, a year does google get asked Right. And so prior to Google, who did we ask those questions to? Right. Were those questions simply not asked, um, which is what Google would say? Yeah. Um, or or is it that we would ask that to other people, um, to teachers, to parents, to, to community leaders and stuff like that? And if it's the latter, then, okay, that's problematic that we're no longer having those sorts of, of really kind of deep, meaningful interactions around like sharing information and... Um, passing on to the next generation and so um along the same lines okay if we're if you're spending this much time on your phone what's what's getting lost Mm -hmm. like like it's not as if people were literally like just sitting in silence in back in the day like we were doing other things and now if we're spending 90 minutes a day on our phone okay where does that 90 minutes coming it, what, from what, somewhere. It, yeah. yeah. Is it taking out of the amount that we sleep? Is it taking out of the amount that we watch TV? Is it taking out of the amount that, that um, we spend time with loved ones? Is it making taking out of the time that we exercise? Mm-hmm. Um, and this seems to suggest that at least one of the things it is, is taking out of the time that we exercise, which yeah. I think is interesting.
1: Yeah. And I should also mention one other caveat too. And this is actually encouraging kind of for our running community. Um, they did find that the students who reported the low you know, smartphone usage, many of them actually use their phone. For motivation, for fitness, by going on things yeah, like Strava see, and Connect, yeah. etc. So they actually use their phones to keep in touch with similarly active, you know, friends like we do with right. our runners, with right. our running community. Right. So I which is it-
0: which is the reason why initially when you said what the finding of the study was, that's the reason why it throws me off a little bit because I think we do pay attention to, understandably, we do pay attention to a lot of the things that smartphones and and the advent of apps and and social networking and all that sort of thing has done to improve fitness. Mm -hmm. Not to undermine it.
1: Right. Right. Like I don't have any games on my phone. So I I did think that was interesting. And it does kind of make, it does kind of provide a bit more nuance. You know, I know there was another study I was looking at that was, you know, produced in 2012 from, from BYU. They essentially found that the majority of, of apps when looking at kind of fitness apps, you know, they don't really provide great customization you know, you know they don't provide great you know plans necessarily. They should you shouldn't necessarily just download an app and then say, all right, I'm going to follow this training plan only. You know, because they just they're too generic, as we've talked about before, just like any other internet-based kind of generic plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but the kind of the overarching kind of theme is choose your apps wisely, hmm. almost the way you would choose your friends, since you're spending so much time with your apps and hmm. have such a relationship with them. <laughs> like you almost need to be careful with which ones you're you're spending time with and downloading because. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, the the possibility seems to be that cell phone use, you know, encourages physical activity among low frequency users, but it disrupts physical activity and encourages sedentary lifestyle among high frequency users who are likely using it at a high frequency because it's things like you know, f- you know Angry Birds or something like that, mm-hmm. which would of course is designed to keep you on the phone even longer, right? And then, and then by way extension, you know, eliminate your your time and relationship with fitness. There was another study, which I don't want to get too much into, but it actually found that people who looked at their phone during physical activity, mm-hmm. like they would report, oh, I, I was on the treadmill for 40 minutes. But then when they actually measured, they were looking at their phone for like 18 minutes and actually running for like 22. <laughs> um, so it just kind of, it does code to show where like it kind of, it can create that idea of, oh, I've worked for an hour on email, when really you've put in 30 minutes of time on email and 30 minutes of oh, time scrolling through.
0: So, I see your point. So, 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 yeah, you're actually inferring from this study that says that, that we tend to use our phones in less productive ways than we, we think we do. Correct. That's an, ex- that's an or interesting Or should point.
1: I say that, that temptation is always there? I don't want to, yeah. like, swing a hammer and say everyone does it that way, but yeah. that study found... Now, that study, too, was, was you know, obviously looking at the more high-frequency phone users. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at your phone during exercise, I would imagine you're in the higher-frequency you know category
0: maybe I don't know I don't know yeah so that that's interesting though to consider okay so if you are actually using while you are see to me I always feel like if I have my phone with me when I'm when I'm riding on the bike inside I'll keep on riding while I look at my phone yeah <laughs> so the idea that you're actually stopping yeah that that, that that's the striking part about that but yeah, but, anyway. but, 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 I, but I do think it's interesting that the inference that you made that that suggests that okay we think we might be using it productively and in fact we're just using it counterproductively.
1: right Right. And, and I should say too, you know, we talk about how you and I, you know, we came of age as runners before like GPS watches. And so mm-hmm. that affects how yeah. we write our training plans. Yeah. Like we, we learn that we
0: approach runs and workouts and stuff. Right. Yeah. I
1: think the same could be said for you. you can stay engaged in your workout because you've been doing this for so many years right. that a phone's not going to distract you and, and make you stop pedaling. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, you've pedaled on a bike for so many hours in your life. that It's, you know, second nature. Right. Same with me for running. But I think you know for people who maybe are new to that, you know, they get pinged on their phone. It's it's very tempting or easy to just stop and you know look down or something. Interesting,
0: interesting, very good, interesting research. So are, are we getting ready to, to to spend the next few weeks going down a rabbit hole with Patrick and phones, like we did with Patrick and sleep? I don't think so. Asking asking I, I, for a friend. I think this is <laughs> well, yeah right.
1: I think this is more part of the just overarching, uh, you know, um, approach to how can I better let myself recover mentally yeah you know one of them is sleep one of them is
0: cut off the phone um right on right on all right so let's talk about a little bit of news let's talk um and so there's a couple of pieces of news that we kind of need to circle back around with and and just kind of update everybody on so Mm -hmm. um one is to talk about yamif kadelcha and uh the indoor mile world record. So you'll recall a few weeks ago, uh, a couple months ago it might have been, uh, we talked about this Ethiopian runner who runs for the Nike Oregon project named Yamif Kajelcha, and he missed the world indoor record by 0.01 seconds, um, which is literally about three, uh, three inches if you were to convert that to a distance uh and it's about 1 30th of the amount of time that takes to blink your eye um and so he was pretty upset about that understandably sure um i mean
1: had he just not had a haircut
0: he didn't make right I something like, nothing and he actually paced it really really poorly he went out too fast mm-hmm. um and so there was kind of so, some some stuff there but anyway um uh March 3rd was the charm for him. He actually went out in Boston and uh, 21 years old he ends up uh, beating the world indoor mile record um, by actually a pretty significant margin. He beat it by 1.44 seconds. Um, The former record Hisham El-Garouj was 348.45 and the new world record holder Yamif Kajelcha ran 347.01 which is a really impressive time here. Um, It's actually the fastest mile that anybody has run period um, since 2007, so the fastest run mile that anybody's done in 12 years, um, and we should also mention in that same race, uh, the guy who finished second was a guy named Johnny Gregoric from the United States. Uh, he ran 3:49.98, um, which is also the sixth fastest ever, and it was the number two uh, in United States history, uh, the second fastest ever time by an American indoors in the mile two. Um, and so it was the first time that indoor mile had ever produced two th- sub three fifties in the same race. So, uh, so shout out to Yemtch Kajalshe uh, for getting his world record, and then um, also sort of honorable mention there to Johnny Gregoric, which I feel stupid saying honorable mention for somebody who ran a three forty nine mile. But oh my god, yeah. Um, but uh, but but yeah. So some pretty incredible uh, uh, performances there on March third. Um, we should also mention Kimoy Campbell. Um, You all will recall that Kimoy Campbell was the Jamaican distance runner who uh, a few weeks ago was pacing at the Milrose Games. He was pacing the 3,000 meters, and he went through about the 2,000 meter mark and just kind of stepped off the inside of the track and collapsed, Um, and he had some heart issues. He essentially had a heart attack. He went into cardiac arrest, and they had to um, defibrillate him and bring him back there on the side of the track, and then he went into intensive care for a little while. Um, So he's... uh, he, we talked about him a little bit because he has shined a light on uh, the insurance issues related mm-hmm. around a lot of professional athletes. Now, he's Jamaican national. He was running as a pacemaker, an employed pacemaker, at an American track meet, um, and he didn't have health insurance. Now, he's a sponsored runner. He's sponsored by Reebok, but yet he didn't have health insurance. And as you can imagine, a 27-year-old has a heart attack, has to go into intensive care. His medical bills are staggering. Um, uh, and so, uh, come to find out USATF doesn't insure him at that meet, even though he was at that track meet, because he's not a member of the United States. He's not a citizen of the United States and not a member of USATF's governing, um, body. Um, uh, he, uh, does not have insurance through his employer Reebok because he's basically a 1099 employee, Yep. Um, and, uh, and so he was effectively running without health insurance. Uh, Reebok has donated $50,000 to try and help defray some of those costs, but uh, given how much, um, given how high medical costs are, that's, you know, kind of a drop in the bucket here. Um, but anyway, uh, he spoke to the press this week, and he said, uh, when I woke up, it was Monday morning, two days after the race, and I was in the hospital. I didn't know where I was and how I got there. It was scary to know I missed almost a whole two days and couldn't recall what had happened. Um, they actually, unquote, his, his, um, his doctors actually said that, that he effectively had died on the side of the track, um, and had to be brought back from the brink, from, from the flat line there. Um, most strikingly though, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this, Patrick though. He said, quote, in my mind, I should be back on the track. Doctors say I should take some time off and then do some tests. Then maybe I can start slowly and build back up, unquote. I'm kind of struck by that. I mean, he so, so he had, he had to have heart surgery and they, and they, um, they implanted an internal defibrillator, um, which is uh, not an uncommon thing for people that have, have heart issues. They have not been able to figure out what caused his heart attack. They haven't actually said, okay, you had this issue and this is what happened. They don't know why it actually happened. Um, but he's talking about getting back on the track and resuming his, run, his, his running career. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know what to say about that. I don't know if that's dedication or delusion. Yeah, or, like, or or just or just not knowing what else he can do with his life. Oh you know? gosh, that's even sadder. Yeah, um, I don't know why that didn't come to my mind. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, yeah. To me, it's it's that feels sad. Um, and maybe I'm being a jerk about it. I don't know. But uh, and maybe I'm being a naysayer. Um, but but something about that really strikes me as sad. So by all means, folks, reach out to us and let us know.
1: It it almost reminds you of sometimes you'll see this. You'll see this more with um, like football players. Mm-hmm. Where they're used to to persevering through injuries, yeah, you know, and, yeah. and and I mean every NFL player has the opening
0: scene of Jerry Maguire.
1: Well, yeah, or I was going to see the Friday Night Light scene where he tries to play with the torn yeah. MCL because he just yeah. doesn't yeah. know yeah. no th- what the doctor's trying to tell him. Like, right. dude, you can't, you can't do this. Um, and you see it a lot where so they th- when they do get that de- debilitating injury, a lot of them don't quite understand what's happening. Like, no, this is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. Yeah. and. Like, if I had been told, hey, like, we need to defibrillate you at a race, I'd be like, all right, I think my running career is going to be right. done for a little while. Right. Um, so I just, I don't know. I don't even know how to react to that other than I just, I hope he has a good support system, whether it be good parents, good coaches, someone who says, I know you're driven, I know you want this, but yeah. we need to let go for right yeah. now and, and recalibrate what I, our goals
0: are here. When it makes me think, too, about how... There's a degree to which in order to be successful at a pro level in, in, in almost any sport, but particularly in track and field, you have to sort of put all your eggs in that basket. Right. You know, and so he has put all his eggs in that basket and, and he's pretty successful. I mean, he was a pacer, and, and pacing is a really good gig for those of you who don't know. Pacing is a really good gig for people who are not quite at the absolute top level. Mm-hmm. If you're at the absolute top level, you can actually command an appearance fee just for showing up at a race. Mm-hmm. And so he's not quite good enough to demand an appearance fee, he's not quite good enough to win the race and so thereby win the prize money, but he can get guaranteed money by pacemaking for the first 2,000 meters of a 3,000-meter race, which, mind you, nobody in this room could pace the first 2,000 meters of a pro-level 3,000-meter race, right? Um, I mean, that takes a very high... I mean, high... I could
1: do that on a motor scooter.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it takes a very high level of running ability and a great deal of training and hard work in order to be able to, to simply pace them for two, the first two-thirds of that race, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's had to put all of his eggs in that basket in order to be skilled and uh, enough to, to do that. And now he's twenty seven, and twenty eight, and right, he's had this catastrophic, very sudden end, and and doesn't quite know where to go next. Um, yeah, it's, it's that's striking to me.
1: Yeah, the I, I gotta tell you, the the Olympics a lot of times are not quite as heroic as I thought as a child, hmm. if that makes sense. Because we're we talking about the Olympics a little bit more in here. Man, keep going. Um, you know, to be a a, a truly world class athlete, you have to give yourself over to a pursuit. And pursue and, and pursue it in a way where you put family aside, you put friends aside, you put monetary gain aside, you know, economic security aside, and it really requires athletes to kind of endure a great amount of, you know, deprivation and discomfort to actualize their goals. And, to and kind and, of
0: and you have to you have to put your health aside. Oh yeah. And I mean, and so so I think that we we have this this notion of Olympic athletes and high level athletes as being like the epitome of health, right. and they're like the healthiest people. They're not. They're not. They're actually they're the fastest people, but they're not the healthiest people. You know, the trainer at Georgia Tech used to say, this is the fittest group of, of injured and sick people I've ever known. Right. Um, because you're basically sacrificing your body for the sake of going faster, right. not getting really, really, really fit. Right. That's 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 actually a mindset in myself I've, I've, I've had to work on as I've continued ages around.
1: That's right. And I'll tell you a quote I heard from um, an NFL scout. And I know NFL is different, so I apologize for kind of mixing up apples and oranges. But there was a, a great lineman from I believe Mississippi, and he like just tore up his knee. He was great as a freshman, mm-hmm. sophomore. He was like a top five recruit in the whole nation. Tore mm-hmm. up his knee in college, and so at the NFL Combine, you know, someone asked him, and they said, by him I mean the scout, you know, well if we just get him healthy, he'll be great again. And the scout said, I've been in the NFL for thirty years. Let me tell you, no one enters the NFL and leaves healthier than when they started. Right. It just doesn't have, like, right. it's, you start as a rookie and you only get more and more unhealthy and more and more injured. Right. Um, and there is some level, I don't think it's quite the same degree, obviously, in running, mm-hmm. but it does kind of highlight your point where we, we sometimes don't realize just how much they're sacrificing and just how truly injured they are. Right. Um, right. Underneath kind of the, the surface. For sure. For sure. And then the other part too is when you, when you pursue that, you know, passion or that avenue so forcefully it doesn't allow you to grow other areas of life right you have to cut off you have to essentially prune your tree to a point where i mean there's a reason why a lot of athlete interviews are very dull because <laughs> their life is dull i mean if you've read the once a runner
0: well nicole de mercurio talked about how yeah. she, she's living this essentially monastic life right. in blowing rock north carolina yeah
1: you don't have time to learn like computer programming on the side or something mm-hmm. like you don't have time to pursue kind of side interest um so that's kind of the, the sad part. And I, didn't, I didn't even think of that, um, you know, that, that aspect. But, you know, David Foster Wallace was a great writer in the 90s. You know, one of the, kind of the America, America's kind of top fiction writer. And he was a big-time tennis player as a kid. Mm-hmm. I, th- and I think he was, like, ranked in the top 100 or so in high school. And then he decided, that said, I, I can't do these, like, eight-hour practices by myself with a trainer. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to I pursue writing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he wrote, he said, you know, the elite athlete... It's really like a child child's world. You only ha- you have a certain amount of rules. You're told when to go to sleep, when to wake up. You have very you have prescribed meals, and it's really kind of quite small and limited. And I thought that was a very interesting comparison because where yeah. where most of us continue to expand our world and we go off to college and we read new books, we meet new people from other cities. To, to many great athletes, they never get that chance to expand right. in their twenties or kind of engage in that self expansion years. Yeah. So, anyways, I probably went on a bit of a tangent, but
0: I, I think it's okay because and I, and I think and I didn't expect necessarily to be kind of going down this path uh, with this conversation, but I think that that Kimoy Campbell as an entry point continues to to shine light on things that we need to be thinking about. Right. Um, you know, first it was the insurance thing, and and that's that's legit. We should still be thinking about that and trying to to uh, fill those holes. But another one is you know the life of. A professional athlete um mm-hmm. and, and what it takes and yeah um makes me you know happy maybe that i didn't follow that route. you know uh all right so speaking of professional athletes the third thing to talk about um to circle back around to something we talked about a couple of years ago um and something that i shared on my personal facebook page is that on uh, on international women's day uh, march 8th um the u.s women's soccer team filed suit um, against USA Soccer or against the United States Soccer Association, um, and uh, they said that they were being paid less than the men's teams. In some cases, earning just 38% of the pay per game that men actually get. Um, and this is despite the fact that in recent years the women's team has generated more profits and revenue for the U.S. Soccer Federation. They've earned larger viewing audiences. Uh, they've played more games than the men's team. Um, In addition, the women have also won three World Cup titles and four Olympic gold medals. Um, And of course, this this is coming just three months before they defend their World Cup title at the 2019 tournament in France, after the men last year didn't even qualify for the World Cup. Mm -hmm. And yet here you have women getting paid 38% per game what the men get paid. Um, and so it's 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 striking on a variety of of levels, not the least of which is just the bald hypocrisy and and inequality of it. Um, but if you think about the things that sometimes people will say, um, oh well, the reason why football players get paid more than 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 uh, WNBA is because football generates so much more, and there's so much more people who watch it. Okay, like or I, NBA I, versus WNBA, yeah, yeah, the yeah. NBA versus WNBA is obviously a better example, right? right? Um, but there's to me, that, that argument, I don't totally agree with it, but it's difficult to refute. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have that argument here, <laughs> right. you know. Um, so according to the lawsuit from 2013 to two thousand sixteen, uh, women's national team players could earn a maximum of four thousand nine hundred fifty dollars per friendly or non tournament game that they won, while the men's national team players earned an average of thirteen thousand one hundred sixty six dollars for the same thing. So the men's minimum was three times as much as the women's maximum was. Um, The men's average was three times as much. Um, Now they reached a new collective bargaining agreement in 2017 that supposedly was to address a lot of these things um, and that's the reason why women haven't filed suit over the course of the past two years.
1: And uh, let me back to you and say, the reason they even reached the settlement is because they sued in 2016. Right. So it's right.
0: not like soccer reached yeah, out that's, out of that's the goodness the of their heart. That's yeah. the last time we talked about it on the podcast. Right. So yeah, I say, I say I'm circling back to something. Mm-hmm. I'm circling back to literally to something from almost three years ago here because we talked about it on the podcast then, and we talked about much larger you know, women's sport in general. Um, and so yeah, they sued then. They got the collective bargaining agreement. And basically what they're suing for now is to say it's still not fair. It's still not fair and they wait until march 8th international women's day they wait until right before the world cup you know to kind of say all right we're putting you on notice here um and and um yeah the us usff uh, the united states soccer federation um it also alleges that they've allocated fewer resources to promoting women's games than men's game including not allowing announcing games early enough to allow for larger crowds yet the crowds are larger and they're making more money <laughs> <laughs> um and so so yeah um it's just kind of incredible uh in general now the the response from uh ussf from united states soccer federation is basically hey we took care of all this with our new collective bargaining hey we, we did this right we got it now the actual details of the ussf collective bargaining agreement from 2017 are not public so we don't we can't judge for ourselves right now mm-hmm. whether that in fact happened I'm inclined to agree with the athletes that it's probably not equal just yet, but we'll see. Um, One thing related to this, that just this week, Adidas, you might have seen, announced that they are uh, at the World Cup this summer for Adidas-sponsored athletes. So just like in basketball, individual athletes have shoe contracts, or just like in running, I guess, individual athletes have have shoe contracts. Mm -hmm. Um, Adidas has announced that any of their Adidas-sponsored athletes who... Uh, win games, and ultimately win the overall World Cup at the Women's World Cup this summer are going to get the same bonuses that they paid to the men who are Adidas-sponsored athletes who won last year. Um, so that's pretty cool of Adidas, but that's yeah. certainly not, you know, it's certainly not addressing the systemic inequalities. Right. Um, so... Obviously, this 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 uh, is is very important on its face, um, and and I'm pulling for the U.S. women's soccer team to to be successful here. I think it's also super important in terms of just equity between men's and women's sports at large. Um, it's rare that you have um, the really really good out front, well known athletes taking one for everybody else, because yeah. for these women, these are these are women at the pinnacle of sports who are getting crapped on. The women at the lowest level of sports, like, it's far worse. Right. 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 Um, and so so for them to kind of be out there and taking the charge and, and and fighting for equity at the highest level, that ultimately, ideally, hopefully, will will if it works out, will will lead to equity at the lower levels as well. So pulling for them on that and I appreciate them taking one for the much larger team, if you will.
1: And in, in all sports, the only like if LeBron James doesn't stand up and say, "Hey, we're not signing right. this collective bargaining agreement," right. he's the only one with leverage. Right. I mean, they're you know, so for the stars and, to, and people
0: like LeBron James tend not to because well, they have so little to lose. He's like, "Hey, I'm making four hundred thirty million dollars, so I'm going to do that."
1: Right. Yeah. So kudos to to these athletes who are kind of taking a stand for other people in their sport. I right. mean, that that really does. And let's also remind people too, like if you're a doctor and you lose a year's worth of pay, you have forty more years of yeah. seeing patients. If you're an athlete. You don't have, you know, so many years of, of practice. You you have your 20s, and that's about it. So if, if you're sacrificing a year or so to go on strike or to mm-hmm. make a political point, that's a very big deal. Yeah,
0: yeah. You're, you're essentially sacrificing one-tenth of your lifetime salary potential. Right. Yeah, and so, so I mean, yeah, I totally agree with you, um, and I think that's important to bring up. So, so yeah, kudos to them, man, and, and we're hoping for the best outcome there. All right, so the last piece of news uh, that I'll mention here, um, and we've been talking for a while because we've had a lot to say. I've been missing you, man. I know. Yeah. Um, but but last thing we'll talk about here is something that we've never had as many people write, out, write to us and ask us to talk about something as we had people write to us and ask us to talk about this. Um, and that is the new standards that were announced by the IAAF on March 3rd. Um, so on March 3rd, uh, same day as Yamif Kajelcha running that indoor mile, same day that Smith Abarki ran the Tokyo Marathon, same day that Lauren Fogarty ran the uh, Chattahoochee 5K, it's a big day, man. What would you do on March 3rd?
1: Oh gosh. Uh well I ran the road to gold or Yeah, right, yeah we right? did. That's right. That was that yeah.
0: same weekend. All right, very good. So so yeah, so we didn't totally blow off that weekend. Mm-mm. Um so so yeah, so that same weekend the IAAFs announced new standards for the Olympic Games. Um and for lots of different events, not just the marathon, but for the five thousand meters, the fifteen hundred meters, for the steeplechases, etc., they made the Olympic standards faster. Um now, we're going to focus here on the marathon to talk about it, but but it wasn't just in the marathon where they made them faster. Now, to be clear, in order to run at the Olympic Games, you have to have run a certain time standard. They don't just let you come into the Olympic Games because your country sent you there. Now, mm-hmm. generally speaking, they've allowed like one person from a country, regardless of whether they had the standard or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, Generally speaking, if you're going to be able to run at the Olympic Trials, you have to, or Olympic Games, you have to have met a time standard. Um, and so, to give you an example, the men's time standard in 2016 for the Rio Games and the marathon was two hours and 19 minutes. And so, if you wanted to run in the Olympic Games, you had to first be sent by your country, um, and then you had to also have run 2:19. Now, they were willing to fudge on that rule just a little bit if if for, if for a country, say, like, um, uh, a small country like that doesn't have a whole lot of runners, like, I don't know, help me out. Um, oh, any country. Uh, we're at the end of the, Egypt. <laughs> Thank you. I keep thinking of all these countries, and I'm like, well, no, yeah, that country probably doesn't. So, <laughs> so let's say, like, Egypt, for example, doesn't have um, a whole lot of people, three people under 219. They would say, okay, you can send us one. That's it. Right. Even if they haven't made the standard, you can send us that one and that's it, right? Um, and so what they've done, though, is they've said, all right, we're changing the qualification process and we're lowering the standard time for men in the marathon from 2.19 to 2.11.30. And we're lowering it for women from 2.45 to 2.29.30. Now,
1: 2.45 to 2.29, that is insane.
0: Yeah. And so, <laughs> so well, 2.19 to 2.11, that's insane, uh, and so so these are these are profoundly faster times. Um, and I know it sounds like, oh well, that's only eight minutes, and oh that's only sixteen minutes. That is a profoundly faster time, um, and and to go to, to lower the time that much when you're talking about times at that level, um, that's huge, um, and and it's incredible. Now they've said, okay, we if you don't meet the time, there's a few other ways you can also qualify. Um, You can also be ranked high enough in their IAAF world rankings, Mm -hmm. which is something that's kind of woven into this. They're trying to make their rankings a little bit more important, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They say you can finish in the top 10 at a world marathon major, so Berlin, Boston, New York, Chicago, Tokyo, and London, right? You finish in the top 10 there. That's an automatic qualification. Or you can finish in the top five of what they call an IAAF gold level race, um, and there's a few races that they mention that are those so-called gold level races. And so even if you don't have the time standard, if you finish in the top ten of World the Marathon Major, the top five at a gold level race, or if you're ranked high enough in their world rankings, you can in fact also meet the standard and, and be granted entry into the Olympic Games marathon. Mm-hmm. But that's it. And so so take like that guy from e- from from Egypt, yeah. who can only run two twenty. He's not going to finish in the top ten at a world marathon major. He's not going to finish in the top five at a gold level race. He's not going to be ranked high enough in the world rankings, um, and he's certainly not going to run two eleven thirty. So Egypt's not going to be able to send anybody to be in the Olympic marathon. Okay. Um, and so, what that means for a lot of like smaller countries, say Honduras, I think Honduras may be a better example. Yeah. There um, go. And so, so Honduras, Belize, all of these kind of small countries that, frankly, a lot of us might not have heard of until we actually see them at the Olympic Games, they're not going to be able to see anybody because their people aren't going to match any of those four different criteria here. All right. So, so given that those are the ways that you have to qualify, a, an additional wrinkle has been thrown in now by USATF, the USA Track and Field, which is the governing body for. Um, for track and field in the United States um, USATF has basically said we're willing to send anybody there who has made the standard and so if they're saying they're only gonna go by the standard that means that they're not actually gonna pay attention to whether somebody's ranked high enough in the world rankings whether they're top 10 at a world marathon major whether they're top five at a goal level race they're only gonna pay attention to whether the standard has actually been met Um, And so that means that that at the Olympic trials next year in Atlanta, um, if the top three haven't all run under 211.30, it's not going to be those three guys who go. It's going to be the highest finishers at the Olympic trials who have also run 211.30. Right. Now, now maybe USATF is going to come back and say, no, 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 no. As long as IAAF says that they're qualified, they can qualify. And so if they finish in the top 10 of World Marathon Major, top five of the goal level race, or if they're ranked high enough in the world rankings, we'll also send them that way. But as of right now, USATF has said, and this is right now, today is what, the 24th? Of, of march uh i the usatf has said we're only going to send people who have actually made that time standard um and again particularly on the men's side there's only one person in the united states who's run that time standard over the course of the last a while and ain't nobody gonna run it at at, at the atlanta trials next year no <laughs> it's not gonna happen because because the, t- the course is too hard um and so so yeah now this is a A problem for a few different people, and 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 this is this is the problematic part of it, and this is the part that that I'm interested to hear what you have to say here, Patrick. First of all, it's a problem for up and comers, and so in order to get into the Olympic trials, you have to have run under two twenty one. Let's say that you've run two eighteen, right, and you're a good runner. You've run two eighteen, you haven't quite pulled together, but then come Olympic trials day, because you qualified for the Olympic trials with the two eighteen. Things just unfold correctly. It's a tough weather day. You're in the best shape of your life. You win the Olympic trials in 213 as a guy. According to the current standards, the time standards, you wouldn't automatically qualify by time. And so the United States would not send you as the Olympic trials winner to the Olympic Games.
1: Or anybody else.
0: Yeah. Um, And so what they would have to do is they'd have to go back through the results and say, okay, who has actually run the time? or at least who has some of these other things, which they've said they haven't gonna, they're have not they not going to look at. Um, and so you wouldn't actually be able to go even though you were the Limit Trials, quali- Limit Trials winner, right? And so it's a problem for the up-and-comers. It's a problem for people who have been injured. Mm-hmm. Um, the window for qualifying starts on the 1st of January this year. Galen Rupp had Achilles surgery last year. He has not run a marathon yet this year. Suguru Osaka who is the guy who run a Japanese national record last year has not run a marathon yet this year. Each of them is going to need to run a marathon under 211.30 in order to automatically qualify for time, or they're going to need to finish the top five at a gold level race or top 10 in a world marathon ranger, or be ranked enough in the world rankings. If they're, and then also of course they have to do well at their Olympic trials in order to be sent. Right, and so if you're somebody who's injured and you basically are able to pull it together and get in shape in order to run in your trials, but your trials on a slow course like ours is, you might not actually be able to meet the standard, even yeah. if you end up doing well in the trials. So it's tough for people that are up and comers. It's tough for people who are injured. Um, it's it's
1: also uh, it's also tough for people. Um, like here's my thing: I don't like that they essentially change the rules in the middle of the game. Yeah. Like a, mar- a a marathon training cycle is four years. Yeah, people have been training for years to say, okay, let's just get a two thirty nine, for example, for a woman mm-hmm. at CIM. We don't need you to run a two thirty five mm-hmm. or a two twenty nine. Mm-hmm. Just be in shape enough to run a two thirty nine. Mm-hmm. Get in there, and then we'll we'll get it, we'll take it from there. Right. It's just like in other sports. You know, once the the players have made, once the team has made the playoffs, you don't play your starters the final game or two. You mm-hmm. rest them. Yeah. And I feel like that, that, you know, and that's just gamesmanship. That's just knowing yeah. the rules of the game. Why right. burn yourself out before the, the the gold medal or the playoff tournament right. even starts?
0: Right. And so, well, think about the people who qualify. So to your point, the people who qualified for the trials at CIM. Right. A ton of people qualified for the trials at CIM. Right. And so the people who were pretty fast, but maybe not two twenty nine thirty fast. But pretty fast. Say, say a woman who ran two thirty.
1: What about Bridget? Uh, Atc. What's what's her last name? I, it's
0: totally blanking now.
1: But she ran like a two thirty one or something. Okay, so like so, that. so so
0: take her. She's run two thirty one, right? She trains in the Atlanta roads. She's not planning to run any marathons this year because she's entirely focused on on what's going, you know, and in, in preparing for the Atlanta games and is hoping for things to unfold in such a way come Olympic trials day, that that she would be able to finish in the top three, right? Under what the USATF is saying as of today, if she finished in the top three and did not run under two twenty nine thirty at the Olympic trials, she would not make the team. They would not send her to Tokyo for the Olympic Games. Um, now, if, now, the USATF could change that and they could say, no, 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 well, well we're going to go by what the IAAF says and she's ranked high enough in the world rankings and so therefore she can now go. Um, they could change that, but but as of right now, it's not sure whether that's actually going to happen. Or Bridget could go out and she could finish the top ten at the World Marathon Majors or the top five at a goal level race, but that's hard. Yeah, you know that's hard to do. Um, and it's not like top five Americans there; it's top five overall there. And so she's competing against all the East Africans and and a uh, pretty deep race there. Um, so so yeah, it's 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 definitely problematic for people who kind of had this plan, like you're saying, they had this. This, this set And they were like, okay, this is what we're going to do in 2019. Then we're going to do this in early 2020. It's actually changing what people are going to have to do there. Right. Right. Um, I think it's interesting along the same lines for people who, for Americans who tend to run at New York and, and Boston, those slower courses. Right. There's an incentive not to be running those slower courses. There's an incentive to go Chicago or nothing. You know, right. I'm going to go to grandma's. I'm going to go to Chicago. And I'm not going to New York or Boston because the times are going to be too slow there. Um, and I need a fast time if USATF says I have to run under 211.30 if they're going to send me to the Olympic Games, regardless of how I do it at the trials. Um, the third thing I'll say about it, and, and I'm interested in what you have to say about this too, is two things about it. And these are kind of related. One is that it definitely undermines the trials. And so Rich Kana, the the head of uh, Atlanta Track Club Mm -hmm. we've talked about before, is is pretty fired up because it it very much undermines the trials. And the reason why it undermines the trials is because you like to think the top three people who cross the finish line at the trials are going to be the three people representing the United States at the Olympics. Mm -hmm. That's like the most American thing ever. You know, it's super democratic. It's like, hey, get out there and do it. And it can be really, really cold for somebody who finishes fourth, you know, four years in a row or or, two three or four trials in a row Um, but it's it's super fair you know right and so so now to kind of fold in and say oh well it's gonna be the top three who also do this other thing that 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 to me feels very un-american and very undemocratic and it does indeed undermine the trials and very unsportsmanlike like it feels very bureaucratic like oh did you meet or like it's almost feels like an
1: insurance where it's like well you didn't meet these parameters so we won't cover you yeah, you know, it almost feels like that. Well, yeah, and, and as you, opposed and, to like and sport, you say,
0: and you say bureaucratic. To me, it makes it feel like so. With them saying, "Oh, well, we have to be high in our rankings, and and you have to you have to do well at a world marathon major or one of our gold level designated races." To me, that feels bureaucratic too, and that feels very insidery as well. Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? You have to do well at these certain races. Um, uh, that to me feels very insidery too. Um, but yeah, I interrupt you. What were you saying?
1: But yeah, and I mean, the whole point of sport, I think Roger Bannister said something like, the point of sport isn't to be wrapped up in a blanket on a cold weather day. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm butchering the quote, but his point was, you know, even if it's cold, even if it's raining, even if it's, you know, classic British weather, you still got to get out there and do it. Yeah. And that's kind of that's the beauty of sports in kind of an ever really growing bureaucratic society, an ever more growing litigious society. Sports is the one arena where, you know, so it's, it, kind it's, of pure. it's still, you know, muscles and ligaments that get it done. Yeah. It's still you know, kind of the area where we can be kind of macho men, so to speak, for lack of a better word, to say, you know what, I'm just going to get it done. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to kind of, you know, we're all in this together. We all have to fight the elements. Mm -hmm. And this kind of, you know, old school toughness still holds value in this arena. Yeah.
0: And, you know, and some people have kind of said that, okay, well, what this is going to mean is if, is that we're going to send our strongest team objectively. And so it's not going to be about like who performs well on that one day at the trials. It's going to be about who has the best portfolio of experience throughout the course of the year leading up to and including the trials. right? I appreciate that point of view, um, but I still think about that up-and-comer. And that, 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 that kid with the Olympic dream, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to sneak in there with that third spot. Well, if he can't sneak in there with that third spot if he's, if he's um, or she's not, uh, yeah. has, has it run the time. The standard. other thing I can tell you too, so like in college football, a
1: few years ago, I think it was like 2003 or so, they implemented what was called the BCS. We're like, all right, mm-hmm. we're going to use computer rankings to rank these teams. Right, right. So then what happened? All these teams are like, all right, well, let's like pay, per, let's pay Purdue $100 so they're they can bust their poor players and mm-hmm. we can beat the crap out of them, mm-hmm. put up a hundred points mm-hmm. and game the system. So to speak, right. you don't want anything like that happens to where we, you point out everyone just starts running these downhill marathons, right. you know, and then the more kind of, um, sportsman like marathons, like the Boston, the New York, et cetera, with Hills become, di- you can become disincentivized to engage in that competition. Or,
0: or better yet, you know, Patrick Ollinger and George Darden set up a marathon in my backyard and and we pay a bunch of money to a bureaucrat at the IAAF to label it as a gold level race and we and we just and, and, and top five people, there's only five people run it, and they all finish in the top five, and so therefore they're all automatic qualified for the Olympics.
1: And, and they all get free roller skates to use during the race. Yeah, I
0: mean, it, <laughs> so, so so it kind of opens – I mean, anytime you open something up for a more bureaucratic solution, it opens up for, for potentially more corruption as well. That's right. my point. Right. Um, and so, so I, I feel like that's kind of an aspect of it as well, right? And so to me, it's just fraught with problems. But then – the last thing to say about it is... is—is Did you look at Bridget's name? Is that what you Yeah, at? so
1: it was... Her name is Bridget Lyons, and she ran okay, a 236, which... Uh, if your goal is to run 245, when you run 236, you're like, great, I made it. Right. I, I made right. the cutoff. I scored enough points right. to win the game, so to right. speak.
0: And the Olympic um, trial the Olympic trial standards were, were largely based, by the way, around what the Olympic standards were. So the
1: trial's A standard was 237. So she probably right. was just trying to get under that yeah. time. That was
0: the A standard. The B standard was 245, and that's what the former Olympic standard was. Right. Right? And so so the question also is, is are we going to, in the future, raise the Olympic trial standards, which... To me, it would also be tragic because that would mean fewer people would get to go to the Olympic trials. And, and for people at a certain level, that's what keeps them running is right. the qualifying for the Olympic trials. Um, and as we've said so many times on this podcast, the more people you have run under 220, the more people are going to have run under 211. Right. Um, and the more people you have run under three hours, the more people you're going to have run under 220, etc., etc., etc. Finally, the other thing about it that really strikes me is that it, it feels really anti-Olympic. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to be... The f- not the first person to say that, that the Olympics are a different beast than the World Championships and from other like Diamond League track meets and all that sort of thing. The Olympics were founded on a, a different set of principles. Um, mm-hmm. And the Olympics by their very nature are supposed to be more inclusive. And yeah, I'm holding up and expressing this really starry-eyed notion of what the Olympics are, um, but I buy into the notion of the Olympic movement. Um, and I think it has political ramifications and I think it has, has Mm -hmm. positive political consequences. Um, and so I think that there needs to be at the Olympics, runners and athletes from these tiny little countries that nobody has ever heard of. And they show up on the starting line and they're standing next to the best in the world and, and they're in the Olympic village and, and we are finding out about all these places as a result. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, that needs to be a part of the Olympic Games. If you don't want to make that a part of the World Championships, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. You know, that's fine. But but by saying you have to either run the time standard, be ranked high enough in our little world rankings, be the top 10 in a world marathon major, or a top 5 at a Gold level race, by saying you're not going to get to run the Olympics unless you have one of those four things that's going to mean that a lot of people who are fast runners from small countries, Mm -hmm. people that have run men who have run 222, 223, you know, women that have run 235, 238, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, Fast runners from really small countries who are working without a great deal of resources um, and are aspiring to the Olympic games and have been for years and years and years are not going to be allowed on the starting line. Yeah. And to me, that's anti Olympic and that, that, and that's contrary to the Olympic spirit. And, and really at bottom, that's my biggest issue with the whole thing.
1: Yeah, it it feels too like we're 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 cutting more and more people out, and I don't see the
0: the utility in that. Totally, way. it's not the same. They, they said that one of the reasons why they wanted to do it so they could cap the marathon field at eighty people. Now I don't understand that. And so, I so, so 80, the so 80 people. There's 150 countries that go go to the Olympic Games. Eighty people. Yeah, I mean that's that's you know less than half the country is even going to be represented in the marathon, and the marathon should be one where everybody has a representative. Well, not only that, but like. Because it's the quintessential Olympic event. Keep going. Like, how,
1: how is it more costly to have 200 people in a marathon? Right. Um. I would understand, like, if you were like, oh, well, we have to have a separate game for every two teams we let in. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if you're explaining a playoff field, for example, in another right. sport, it's like every team we bring in here is another two games or seven mm-hmm. games if it's basketball or baseball. There's right. a series. But marathon, it's like, you're already there. Right. You're already set up. Right. There, put, put, out, put out three more water like, cups. It's not like they're going to be... <laughs> Running four-hour yeah. marathons, where you're now waiting for two hours for them yeah. to finish, you're waiting an extra maybe ten minutes. And like, you know what, on.
0: though, if you are, I'm still okay with that. at the, yeah. ma- at the, at the Olympics, um, that's the I beauty mean, of if, running. If, if, if it takes, if it takes some dude who who um, is from a small country that nobody's ever heard of to four hours to cross the marathon finish line, the Olympic Games, fantastic. You know what? He's going to get cheered for as much and get as much television coverage as anybody else, and that's going to inspire people to say, "Where the hell is this country?" And I think that's a fantastic thing. I don't have a problem with that at all. Um, again, the World Championships, I could see why he was like, yeah, I can't come to the World Championships. Okay, fine. I get that. Can't come to a Diamond League track meet. Okay, fine. I'm okay with that. It's the Olympic Games. It's supposed to be honoring the pursuit. It's supposed to be honoring the athlete and the and the, the universality of sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me to say that, oh, yeah, certain people can't come um, because because they're not the absolute best on the planet coming, yeah, I'm not okay with that yeah to me that's that's you know the glory the 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 olympic idea of the glory is not in winning but in participating this literally flips that on its head the glory becomes about about winning and we're not going to have any mere participants all right i had a lot to say about that but i knew i would um and uh and like i said more people reached out to us about this particular topic than have ever have at any other time at the uh the the most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast Lifetime. So, if you disagree with us, or by all means, if you agree with us, drop us a line George at itlcoaching.com, Patrick at itlcoaching.com, Pleasant Podcast at gmail.com. Reach out to us on Facebook, reach out to us on Twitter, um, and let us know what you think.
1: Yeah, we um, love these conversations. So, to keep them common, we didn't want to hit every point when we, we talked about it online because, or you know, the podcast because it is a nuanced discussion, and and there's you know, things we miss. Yeah, there, there, there is. This is there. There's a lot of different angles to take on this. So, by all means, if if you are interested in this, please continue to reach out. And you know, I love having these conversations offline. Right on, Patrick.
0: Ninety minutes in, it's been fun, man. We'll talk to everybody next time.
1: AKA, how much time I'll be spending on my phone
0: today? <laughs> See, now we know. Rather than spending time on the phone, we spent time with the most pleasant ocean podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITO Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com. At ITL Coaching on Twitter and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ITO Coaching and Performance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash Blue Pineapple Travel, Blue and on Instagram, Instagram.com slash Blue Pineapple Travel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollander, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.